Welcome to another episode of North American Deer Talk, where the fusion of facts and opinions become the education and entertainment for all. This is your host, Josh Newton, and we have another great show for you today. Folks, welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. This is Josh Newton. I am your host. It is April 15th. Lovely day outside. We got some sun. Looks like most of the uh, the rain and high winds have, have gone through already. Uh, we're just kind of in, in preparation mode here on the farm for, for fawns coming. Um, but today I want to I wanna get into, a, a I guess, a more fun topic to talk about, something that's near and dear to my heart and I think for for many of the breeders out there um, it, it's something that they they consistently think about uh, internally and then you know have some have some conversations with with other folks about that um, and that's what to look for in a deer and and whether that be a, a, a buck or a doe and I'm gonna try to focus more on the on the female side of things um, because I I think that that's more challenging. Um, the reason the reason that it's more challenging is the primary trait that we look for in in deer as deer breeders, or at least most people do, is is antlers. And uh, when fifty percent of the species doesn't carry those, it's incredibly hard to develop a long term plan at least from a visual perspective of, of, um, you know, breeding, breeding goals, et cetera. So it's, it's something that I've been consistently thinking about and, and this is to, to look outside of the production of the dough, but to look at some of the, the physical, uh, attributes, et cetera, of these, of these females. Um, so I think we can agree that the most dominant trait that most breeders breed for is antlers. Um, at least that's what, what I've seen over the past um, 15, 20, 20 years or so. Um, I would say that consistently most of the industry looks at antlers and says, I, when, I'm, when I'm breeding a deer, that's what I want. And... I guess for the most part, that's that's okay. Um, you know, every, I think everybody has has different goals, and um, you know, if you if you operate outside of that of, of what I just said, that's awesome. Um, I'm not trying to, to pigeonhole anybody into a to a box and say everybody or everyone. Um, certainly, is there's there's exceptions outside of that. So let's just um, let's just make that make that clear up front. Um, the I think generally speaking, though that's a that's a good way to to phrase things is that you know antlers are, are predominantly the the thing that that guys are looking for. Um, 
and again, this is this is the one trait that the females do not have. They they just they don't express antlers. Now, are there does with antlers? Yes, there are, um, and and that's that's one of the anomalies in nature that that we have to deal with. But these aren't uh, you know antlers on females that are ground for um, for production. So. Um, I, I ask I ask the question why in my mind why does breeding for um, just for antlers potentially or have the potential to destroy a breeding program and I think it's it's kind of multifaceted um, when I look at when I look at the breeding program I, I'm trying to look at I'm trying to look at animals and say. Um, I think that inherently this particular doe or this particular buck has a combination of traits that are going to advance the breed. Um, I think we have a responsibility as deer breeders to really look at, and, and I'm speaking specifically for whitetails, but you can look at, at any other uh, livestock species, we we have um, we have a responsibility to make sure that we are um, putting the best of the breed forward, because the decisions that we make today resonate through time. So, if I have certain certain animals that I'm breeding with for whatever specific reasons they are, um, there is the potential a hundred years from now that someone will be using my animals to breed with my the genetics that I've that I've put together over time um, and we can we can look at our industry and as it matures and more time and effort is put into um, developing this industry we have to look where it where it started from so you know some of the earliest deer that I think most of us can can look at or have recognizable names anyway would be um, would be animals probably from the late '80s and then into the early '90s. Um, there's not too many folks that are that are kind of still in the business from from that time era that would remember those. And then there's there's some of us that kind of started there after, um, you know, late 90s into, into 2000s that re- remember those names. And of course, there was, there was still offspring available during that time frame from those, from those animals. But um, that's a, a side tangent in itself. Um, so why is it that, that I think that it could be potentially damaging to, to breed for, for just antlers? I think one of the one of the primary reasons is is um, it's a it's a single it's a single trait or a single group of traits that that express uh, one particular uh, physical formation of an animal, and I love antlers just as much as the next guy, but I think that when when looking at certain genetic lines or, or looking at certain animals. Um, it's important to look at body conformation, um, whether they have sound hoofs, legs, things of that nature. Um, 
I think it's also um, important to look at temperament. And hair coat, physical markings, um, reproduction, maturity. There's a whole host of things that we, we really need to look at. And that's, that's not what we're going to talk about today. But I do think that um, the general health of the animal is overlooked. So um, I, had, I had made a post on, on, our, uh, on our farm page uh, on Facebook yesterday on the Red Ridge Whitetails page. If you haven't uh, checked that out, head on over there. It's just Red Ridge Whitetails. You can punch that into the Facebook search engine and, and take a look at that. And I said that, that you know, any, any buck year over year that consistently needs his, his antlers cut uh, prior to shedding velvet has no value. And, you know, whether, whether the animal has really no value or not, I don't think that's necessarily true. The, uh, and I did say change, change my mind by the way. So it was, it was to, um, it was to in, incite a, a dialogue amongst folks. And, and of course some, some people, uh, did respond and I, I appreciate those and that, that thought process that goes into that. Um, so there's always, you know, we, we're, we're very fortunate in the, in the deer world that we have, we have animals that have uh, value in their in their carcass and their meat, uh, and certainly it's a, a very high quality uh, protein. And then there's um, you know potentially a cape on a buck, and that has value in the taxidermy world. And then there's hides, and um, you know you could have an animal that you can collect uh, urine from for for deer sense and such. So to say it's ne- necessarily um, worthless is is not accurate but it it doesn't it doesn't have the value as a deer breeder that that i personally would be looking for um so is it is it something that is it something that we really want to perpetuate further into our gene pool that there is the potential for that animal to pass on that same trait to his offspring do we want that some guys might. I have n- I have no interest in that, and um, you know I like many have have been guilty of of looking at my animals and saying, okay, I, I really love that deer. Um, you know, he, he I had to cut him before he could he could finally grow out and and, and cast that velvet off. Uh, I'm going to breed with him anyway because I think his his genetics are, are worthwhile. Um, I, I've I've since kind of revised my my opinion of that, and I just I don't think that it's worthwhile to to look at those animals with the the same I don't know the same type of vigor that that I once did. Um, I just don't think there's value in that, and I, I certainly don't want to have that you know genetic trait passed on. So um, one of the um, one of the things I did mention was was body confirmation. Um, how do we? There's there's no I I don't know of any standard that's been that's been you know uh, brought up for for whitetail deer as far as as body confirmation. So we kind of have to address those those things ourselves. Um, so I'm just going to talk about some of the things that I look for personally in in females 
and how maybe I'll, I'll I'll try to give one example of of how I saw you know a certain um, genetic trait kind of play out, and um, I think it'll just be a, a, an interesting dialogue. So is is generally is the, the question is is body confirmation overlooked? And I, I think the answer is yes. Um, I think that absent of any really thorough thought, guys just say, oh, this, this, this doe's good because her dad was good and her mom's good and, you know, she's whatever. She's 110 pounds and, you know, she has value because she makes, you know, large antler sons. Well, I mean, that's, that's great. Um, you know, I, I'm, again, I'm coming at this from a very, uh, northern mindset. So, um, you know, the, the, the further south you go, generally speaking, the smaller the animals get and the further north you go, uh, the larger the animals get. So, um, you know, being in Pennsylvania, we're, we're probably somewhere in between. Um, we don't have, uh, 240 pound does and we, we don't have hundred pound does. So that's just, I guess, something to keep in mind as we, we go through this. It's not a, a one size fits all type of, of thing, but it's a, a good overall perspective of, of looking at the um, looking at the situation. So um, yeah, I think body, body confirmation is overlooked. Um, so how do we how do we set that standard? What do we look for? So I'll give you a general idea of of some of the things that I like, some of the things I look for, um, and then you can kind of develop your own your own idea and thought process on on what that may look like for you and your, your farm. So one of the easiest quantifiers is, is weight. Um, we can look at, at weight as a, a standard because it's easy to run a dough on a scale and, um, and get a weight and write it down. What is not easy is getting measurements off an animal, leg length, torso length, chest circumference, things like that. Um, it's, it's just more difficult because, you know, even when an animal's restrained, it's a, it's a challenge to get those things. Um, you know, you can do it during, during breeding. If you're, if you're immobilizing animals for, let's just say a lap, lap AI procedure or, um, or something like that. So, um, the, we'll, we'll talk about the weight in a second. So I'll, I'll kind of give you my general confirmation needs. Um, I want, I want animals that are naturally tall, long, have adequate, uh, chest, chest confirmation, chest size confirmation. Um, that's, that's important to me. Um, it's, I think it increases carrying capacity for fawns. Um, not that a shorter, squattier doe with a a big barrel chest and a round abdomen can't carry fawns. Certainly, I've seen tons of those animals um, have multiple fawns, th- three fawns, easy, um, and that's just fine. But what um, I think what is preferable to me is more of a, for lack of a better term, a thoroughbred style animal. Um, now if you can combine 
the body conformation of the quote-unquote thoroughbred. Um, and when I think of a thoroughbred, I think of a, you know, a, a taller, more elongated animal um, lengthwise and then adequate chest conformation, but a, a more uh, tapered belly where it goes from the, the lowest section would be the, the point of the chest where it meets the abdomen and then tapers back up towards the, uh, towards the tail. So I guess with that, with that said, um, if you could have a hybrid of the two, um, and I think more deer fall into that line as just more bigger, robust type animals, um, that's important. So one of the questions that I get in relation to, to this is, well, why is the chest cavity, why is the chest cavity so important? Um, to you when you're looking at these animals. For me, I want a doe with a large chest cavity for, for pretty much one primary reason, and that's to have the room and capacity for big lungs and a big heart. Why is that? If, if we believe that, genetically speaking, animals pass on their traits to their offspring we would say that the bucks of a doe that has a big heart and big lungs, that the the bucks would get that too, generally, right? Okay. So, um, again, why do we, why do we want that? Well, if the goal is to, is to make big antlers, which ultimately it is, how do we support that in a way physically that is good? Well, what does the heart do? Pumps blood. What's one of the key components to making antlers? Blood. Blood going up into those, those antlers is incredibly important. We want that capacity. If you look at some of the just, we don't, we don't want a heart and, and lung system that is just taxed all the time. Because then you start throwing environmental things in with the physiology of the animal and that's where things can be challenged. So having that oversized heart, oversized uh, lung capacity where oxygen is flowing within that is just going to create a really robust animal. Um, and it's not like we're, we're training Olympic athletes to, to make this heart muscle grow or anything like that. Like we're, you know, they're out there and they're doing their thing. So that's, um, that's a, a, an important thing for me. Now, back to um back to the the weight here's here's some uh here's some kind of general guidelines that i've been looking at more and more and then we'll run through my farm specifically on on weights just to give you a, a measure of kind of where we're at and how far along we are with playing around with this um so for fawns when I'm talking about fawns, I'm talking about, and, and generally speaking, this is going to be for for all for all animals. We're we're doing fall weights. This is typically around breeding time. These are going to be peak animal weights. So this is going to range somewhere um, somewhere between October November, right? Um, so again, peak animal weights. Now, do animal do some of these animals peak at different times? Yes. 
I'm maybe maybe some of the does peak in December. I'm just traditionally not handling these does in December. You know, they're going to get handled uh, end of October, November. They look round and full to me for the most part. So um, that's pretty much on the the adults. That's where it's at. The fawns are handled um, a little bit earlier. But then potentially we handle them again to maybe cedar some up if we want to breed them or to uh, do some vaccination boosters, et cetera. So, again, same, same kind of time frame, October, November, maybe into the first parts of, of December. So um, I want my – this is all for females. I want my females in the fawn uh, age class 80-plus pounds. Um, that's the standard. Now – we see many doe fawns exceed that with some, you know, being in that, that hundred pound range, which is just awesome. I think personally, you know, have a, have a six, seventh month old, month old animal. That's, um, that's pushing, you know, a hundred pounds. Most of these fawns will breed if you, if you let them, um, you know, we take our, we take our fawns out, uh, Christmas just cause we don't want fawns well into to August. We don't want fawns having fawns well into August or those, those first year yearlings. Um, one and a half year olds, we really would like to see 140 pounds. Two and a half year olds, 155. We'll call, um, we'll call mature does or mature weights, uh, three year olds or older. And we're shooting for, uh, 170 plus on those. The goal Mature weight for 80% of our herd is going to be two, 200 pounds. Um, I, I would like a consistent herd of, of 200 pound does. So you ask, how many 200 pound does do you have today? Goose egg, zero. I have no 200 pound does on the farm. Um, here are my, here are the doe weights. We have uh, 10 animals of of breeding age. Um, these will all be represented, um, at, um, you know, five and a half, two and a half, three and a half, four and a half, but I'm just going to say five. So, um, these are again, all peak weight. Um, what I did in this average is two of the does of the 10 are 10 years old this year. They do not have their peak weight this year. They had their peak weight when they were five years old. So I've added their peak weights from when they were five for the average. The rest of them are fairly young does. Um, so here's here's the weights. 196, five-year-old. 188, five-year-old. 157, two-year-old. 158, two-year-old. 188, two-year-old. 149, two-year-old. 160, six-year-old, 174, one-year-old, 195, two-year-old, 153, six-year-old. So here's the average. Average weight of those 10 does is 171 pounds, 71.8 pounds. The average age is 3.3 years old. So um, for the mature three-year-old or older at 170 plus, kind of age bracket, we, we hit that on our average. And while we're not to the mature goal weight of 80% of the herd being 200 pounds or more, we're on our way. So what are some of the, what are some of the things that I've been 
kind of looking at within that. So the the um, the one the one particular doe who was she's one of the ten year olds now. Her peak weight was one eighty eight, and um, that was at five. Her two daughters that I have, okay, are 188 and 195 at two. So three years accelerated ahead of her schedule for their peak weights. Um, I think it's I think it's safe to say if all continues to go well, they maintain their health, etc. Um, I think it's. At least one of those will go over 200 this year at three, and um, possibly both. Now, if you noticed in that list, there was also a 174-pound one-year-old. This is by far the largest female, when I say one-year-old, one-and-a-half, one-and-a-half-year-old. This is by far the largest um, year-and-a-half-old female that we've had by... um, 18 pounds. The previous one, I think, was uh, 156. And it's, I mean, it's pretty, to to me, it's pretty incredible. So I look at her, and she has the the thoroughbred look that that I want. Um, Again, she's young, so she has time to fill out. Um, when When I watched her grow as a fawn, she was not she's she's from stock that i think has the ability to be exceptionally big um she didn't express that and if i was if i was um calling if i was calling does you know weaning post weaning uh which we do do um and it was based solely on on weights then um she pro- she she would probably be on the upper end of the scale, but she may have been called. So, um, you know, I kind of watched her, you know, watched her develop through her, her spring months and in through summer and her, her growth rate didn't stop. She consistently just kept getting bigger and bigger. And it was, it was all skeleton. You know, she would, you would, you would look at her and you would say, she's kind of skinny. Um, I, I personally like that. If, if you come, you know, it's, again, it's April, April 15th here. If you come look at my Dauphins right now, generally speaking, you're on it. If you, if you've watched them day over day for the past couple weeks, you've watched their stomachs get smaller and smaller and smaller, and they don't have that filled out look. Um, but boy, they're growing tall. And it's you know it's indicative of younger animals to focus more on bone structure for those you know that first 18 to 24 months of life and then kind of put the beef on after that so you know the excited back to the to the 174 pound uh, one-year-old it's exciting to me to see that she was able to fill out pretty nicely um this fall I, I really think that you know that girl has the potential easily to exceed um, 200 pounds. You know, possibly pushing you know to 220 230 um, when she's when she's at her peak weight. You know, I would guess somewhere between four and four and six years old. Um, so this is going to be you know these these weights obviously are dependent on 
the health of the animal, how many fawns they have, are they nursing, you know, multiple fawns to, to full wean age, are they, uh, you know, are they a, a pen mother where they let every every other fawn in the pen drink from them, like just, you know, there's so many different factors there, but uh, generally speaking, you know, if they, they stay in good condition, they'll, they should do that. So um, the one common factor amongst the the top performers weight-wise is they all have very similar genetics. And it's a genetic line that um, we're very happy to continue to use and, and try to make more prolific on the farm. So um, that's kind of the, 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 the weight end of things. Um, I, I wanted to share those, those examples with you. I thought they're, they're, it's fun to look at those and, and, um, you know, the, again, the scale is a, a really easy way to, to quantify size in a dough. Now, when we get into, when we get into like the production end of things, that's a completely separate topic. And, and probably one I'm going to tackle for another day, um, just because I, I think it's, it's, it requires more, more thought than I'm, I'm willing to put in it, um, without some notes and, and some structure to the, to the show. So for, for your benefit, I, I won't get off on a complete tangent and just start freewheeling about my thoughts on, on, uh. Uh, production does, etc. So, um, how now knowing, knowing what we know and, you know, kind of running through that, that general standard and the, the weights of these animals, what do we do with that information? Like what, what, what is there to take away from that? And how do we, how do we make the decision to keep or release these does from our, from our breeding program? Well, there's really, there's really two things to look at. One is the economics of it, the economic development of, um, excuse me, the economic um, uh, driver that you have on your farm. So if you have if you have um, specific financial goals that you need to meet on your farm, um, you're going to have to look at those, and they're going to play a huge part into how you develop this breeding program. And then there's the actual breeding of the animals. There's the the um, there's looking at your your herd and saying these animals have the best chance to stand the test of time within the quote unquote breeder market or whatever market you want to call it. I I, I think it's you know there's there's a hundred different names. Um, you know, for me, I want to develop an animal that other folks want to use in their breeding programs to help influence their herd in a in a positive way uh, down the road. And and I'd like I'd like for I'd like for my animals to be seen, um, or the genetic lines that we're working on to be seen twenty five, fifty years from now. Right. So you can say. I'll throw out a couple names just because everybody knows them. Um, you can say a, a couple a couple names like um, Piedronimo, Wilderness Bucky, High Roller, and and everybody knows who those those animals are. Um, it's it's really it's really easy to um, 
it's really easy to say those names and just think about the great influence that they've had, uh, you know, across the industry. I mean, there's, there's, and, and there, there's more, there's lots more, uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to dis- discount any of the other lines, but like many of the animals we know today have gone back to those types of kind of, um, industry building sires. So what I'd like to look at for, you know, long, long term is creating animals that have a similar caliber um, or influence on other herds as maybe animals like those. I think that's a great standard to, to work from. So um, that's, that's, a, that's a great place to start. So how, how do we, uh, and again, we're, we'll come back to my farm, but it's, it's easier for me to speak about some of the things that we do here in practice than, than perhaps in theory. So... Um, when we when we look at these these goals that we put in place, and I, I won't give you our, our specific goals, but like generally speaking, you know, we want to have the, the the deer that I just expressed to you. Um, how do we how do we get from where we are today to where we want to be from a female standpoint, and with without maybe breaking the bank and you know, just going out and buying stuff from other people that may or may not fit your goals, um, but m- more so do it through the breeding process. So once you, and, and this takes time, once you find specific animals that you think will meet your needs with perhaps one or two or five or ten generations of, of your specific breeding that you like to do in those animals, um, you start to try to make more of those animals or, or, or offspring from them. So um, you identify a doe, you really like this doe. You have bucks that you think complement her specific traits that she has and, and add to them without potentially going in the wrong direction. Maybe it's a, a, a family-type member of hers. That would be really great. Um, but if it's not, no big deal. So it takes time outside of embryo flushing to have those does reproduce and create female offspring that you can then add into your breeding program. And then you have the developmental side, so the physical developmental side of these animals. So let's just say you make that first cross with the doe you really want and the buck you think adds a lot of attributes to to that specific animal. And let's say that you get two does. And both of them do not meet the standards that you put forth. What do you do with them? Do they not have value to you? No, they they do. And you wouldn't necessarily want to call those right away, especially when you're dealing with smaller numbers um, of breedable animals like I am. If you have a bigger herd, it's a little bit easier to overpower some of these decisions with numbers, I feel. Um, if you if you keep those animals and then you 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 breed with them, they're going to give you offspring. Those offspring likely will have some economic value to you, paying for those does. Well, in the meantime, you're breeding that original foundation girl that you want more of to create animals that do meet the standard. So you can see as you perpetuate this over time. You're going to get animals that don't meet the standard but still have economic value. 
And you have to work with those in the meantime till you get the animals from that original Cordell that do meet the standard. You don't want to violate your rules too, too much. So you have to kind of build in what you think is acceptable before you start and not push that rule boundary too much. Because if you do, you're not going to meet your goals. If your goals keep moving, that's not really a good place to start from. So, and you don't want your goals totally unattainable that you you can't ever meet them. So, once you meet them, you move them. But you can't move them until you meet them. So, as we, as as I kind of looked through my animals, I've been slowly peeling out certain genetic lines and certain body types, etc. Um, but that takes time because even though I may not like what I'm seeing physically out of some of those does, size-wise, temperament, whatever it is, um, or maybe a combination of those things, they still can throw me valuable offspring. Now, we didn't talk about, and, and I, I kind of wrap up with that, but we didn't talk about the health of the animal, maturity, things like that. So I'm just going to touch on that really, really quick, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up and you guys can, can ponder on that. Um, so um, as far as maturity goes, I find that, uh, generally speaking, we like early maturing genetics. Um, you know, we, we do want to create a product that matures as fast as possible within the limits of physics, right? Um, so the bigger I can get my younger animals, the better, you know, body-wise, antler-wise, you know, breeding-wise. If I can get fawns out of fawns and they're healthy, awesome, I'll do that. Um, so that kind of plays a, a, a role into that. And then there's there's temperament and then health. We'll, we'll talk about temperament. Um, generally speaking, if you have, you know, relatively smaller pastures or manageable pastures, and I would consider those, you know, two acres or under, an acre, something like that, you want to have relatively good animals as far as their demeanor goes. You don't want to have, you know, you don't want to have really wild animals. They're just not, they're not going to do well for you. So, um, it's, it'll be, it'll be interesting as I, I, I don't have, there's, there's, every once in a while I get, a, you know, I get some offspring out of a particular female line. And while the original female is like really calm, her offspring are just like, they're, they're not so calm. So, you know, I've been slowly, I've been slowly peeling those out and, um, you know, trying to, trying to supplement with, with other animals. And then there's the health aspect of things. So, um, when it comes to health, you know, having, having, uh, offspring that generally stay healthy, uh, animals that just don't get sick, their offspring don't get sick. Uh, there's a ton of value in that. So I would, I would keep that kind of in the back of your mind and, um, you know, kind of add that into your equation. So as far as the, uh, as far as the percentage goes that I give myself leeway, I'm kind of in that 
10 to 20 percent range where i'm comfortable having you know two does or so that exceed those values um the goal the the values and standards that that we have for those those does i i really want to like push that down to where like we're just there's everything falls within within the range we're looking for so um there was one quick question here again we're we're for, for, for those of you listening on the podcast, I, I have this uh, blaring on the, the Facebook Live as well, so people can stare at my ugly mug while I'm, while I'm uh, chatting with all of you. And we do have um, one question in the, uh, in the comments over here from uh, Paul Charles. Thank you, Paul, for that. So um, his, his question is, when is a doe worth flushing? to try and extend her bloodline? That's a, that's a good question. So um, in, in some circles, the, the, um, the flushing of embryos is like just really commonplace. And you'll find that, you'll find that some, some does just generally flush a lot better than others. So I would, I would look at her reproduction generally. I would, for me, and I'm not Paul, I'm not an expert on on flushing does at all. I'm I'm really not. But in in my opinion, um, does that characteristically AI well give you multiple offspring each time you AI them. So like not does the AI and give singles, but like does that consistently give you twins, perhaps even triplets through AI, maybe year over year, and that you find have a lot of value in your herd for meeting whatever standards that, that you have, that would be criteria number one. Because I think we know that they have the ability to, to give you those eggs, right? Um, so that's that's the that's the first thing. So like I have a doe here, I would never try to flush her. She does not AI. I've tried four times, different protocols, the whole works. She just she doesn't AI. She is the most from a from a pure uh, score standpoint, body confirmation. Um, she throws non-typicals mostly, but like she just just still gets it done again and again and again. She doesn't miss, and that's just live breeding to my bucks, which you know are are okay. You know we've had some good deer here, um, but like it, she just hammers them out. She's a machine, uh, but I would never consider flushing her because. She just doesn't meet that that first standard. Are you going to get eggs out of her? No, I'm not. Um, so I guess to the to the more you know, what what is the what's the other kind of point outside of the the physiological one where we're getting we're actually getting eggs and and looking at it from a genetic component. Um, Doing doing embryo transfer, relatively speaking, is not terribly expensive. Um, I'm not I'm not opposed to it. Um, you just you have to. I, I would say you have to know what you want out of it. Um, you know, are you going to use sex semen? Do you want some males? Do you, are you going to use female semen? Do you just want girls? Um, you know, you look at the life expense expectancy of a doe. Um, how do you know a good, what is, how do you, how do you figure out what a good doe is from a a pure production standpoint of throwing quality suns outside of the, 
uh, or, or excuse me, in conjunction with the, the standards that we just laid forward, that those are going to be five, six, seven years old by the time you can even make a remote judgment. I mean, when we when we did our list there, I, I mentioned two 10-year-olds out of, so 20% of my herd is over 10 years old. Well, those does are here for a reason. Um, they just, they, they meet the criteria that I have and they met it, potentially they met it, what, five years ago, something like that. So, um, I would, I would look at those does and say, yeah, they're, they would be worth flushing and, and boy, I would, I would love to have some, some more daughters out of them. Um, I'm fortunate because I've had them for 10 years, um, that I do have daughters, multiple generations of daughters out of them, but you know, how big is your herd? So if you have 50 does and you've identified one doe that you'd really like as many females as possible because you want to start to replace, let's just say you want to carve out 30% of your herd for that one specific female line. Well, you know, if you got 50 does, you got to have what, 12, 15 of those does, something like that. So, you know, it's going to take a normal female through conventional means of having offspring six, seven, eight years, something like that. Um, that's if everything goes well, they have twins, they stay alive, healthy, you make it to weaning, they're starting to produce, etc. So there's, there's a lot of different factors there. If you want to get there in a shorter period of time, you can do that, but you have to wait the time first. So, you know, I think, I think if you have, if you have the funding and you have a feeling about these does, Perhaps you would want to flush them when they were a year and a half or two and a half old, keep the embryos in the tank waiting. Um, but the, the biggest thing with embryos is you're not just getting the dough, you're getting the sire. And until you know what the dough does, how do you make the right decision about the sire that you want to influence what that dough is doing in the real world and not on paper. So a lot of, a lot of questions there, boy, we could, we could ramble about that for, for quite some time. So anyway, uh, I'm going to wrap up here. I appreciate everyone jumping on the, uh, the live stream watching, uh, I'll get this, uh, published up here soon and, uh, everybody take care. I really appreciate it. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye.